Exactly 20 years ago, a speech at the United Nations Security Council changed the world. With the director of the CIA seated behind him and decades of unanticipated war before him, former US Secretary of State State, uh, General Colin Powell falsely claimed Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. My colleagues, every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. I cannot tell you everything that we know, but Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort to disarm as required by the international community. Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. Colin Powell's speech to the United Nations two decades ago. His claims would ultimately justify the US-led invasion of Iraq, a war Australia was also deeply involved with. In 2003, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson helped write that speech as the Chief of Staff in Colin Powell's office. He's since renounced it and America's war in Iraq. And in that same year, Greg Thielman was a State Department weapons expert responsible for analysing American intelligence on Iraq's weapons systems. Later that year, he would publicly accuse Colin Powell of misleading America by exaggerating the threat in Iraq. Both of them join me this morning. Welcome to RM Breakfast. Thank you. Good to be with you. Lawrence, if we can start with you, take us back inside the room where this speech was was written. How did you and Colin Powell wrestle with its contents and the so-called evidence you were working with? Wrestle is a very good verb to use because he did, and powerfully at times, but neither of us was an intelligence professional, and we made the mistake of not taking any of our intelligence professionals at State Department with us because in that intelligence section, there was a lot of dissent, particularly about the active nuclear program. But we didn't, and we were faced by two of the best, quote-unquote, intelligence professionals in America, George Tennant and John McLaughlin. And George prevaricated, and John outright lied. And I didn't discover any of that until later in the summer of that year. And even on one or two of the episodes, the mobile biological labs, for example, until the next year did I discover the truth. Okay. How crucial was Colin Powell's speech in convincing the world and American people that war was a good idea? How key was this moment? He said it, and I believed him, and I personally held the same belief that had he resigned and refused to do the speech, we'd have still gone to war. There would have been less support from the American people, perhaps less from the international community, but we would have still gone to war. He would have been gone uh, in a week. Condi Rice, then National Security Advisor, would have become Secretary of State, and we'd have marched on to war. So people who say that his resignation or refusal to give the the presentation would have stopped the war are smoking some low-grade stuff. It simply wouldn't have happened, and anyone studying the full history of the run-up to the war knows that. But... It would have been a remarkable moment, and in my life, this was a low point, probably the professional and personal low point in my life. I wish he'd done it because I'd have followed him right out the door. Greg, you worked in the State Department in 2003. What was your reaction to hearing Colin Powell's speech? Well, I was dismayed, as I was when uh, the president, President 
George W. Bush gave a speech uh, a few weeks earlier at the State of the Union address in which he he uh, resuscitated a claim on imported uranium from Africa that I thought had long ago been discounted. So this was just uh, one more uh, one more very disappointing development. And uh, I was particularly disappointed because having worked in the Intelligence Bureau uh, a couple of years uh, uh, b- before this, that is to say, uh, retiring only in, in uh, the beginning of October, I had no sense that, that there was a disagreement from Secretary Powell with INR's assessments, which were very skeptical of the kind of evidence that was used in his, in his uh, February 5th speech. So it was very disappointing, especially for those of us who, uh, in general, admired Powell's leadership and Powell's willingness to uh, oppose the Defense Department and Vice President Cheney on a number of other issues, including whether or not the, the, the international community should be addressed to help resolve this problem through the UN Security Council. Ironically, he, f- he failed to carry the UN Security Council, but I think he was really instrumental in getting uh, US support, including congressional support, for the invasion. And uh, and that's the only point that I disagree with with Larry on that. Uh, I think that uh, a resignation would have made a difference. Okay, look, Lawrence, I want to bring you back in. At what point did Colin Powell and your office discuss the lie that you'd essentially sold to the world to justify this war? We discussed it all through that summer. Um, George Tenet was still clinging in telephone calls with the Deputy Secretary of State, Rich Armitage, and Nicole and Powell himself to a couple of the pillars that were later to collapse. The longest lasting one was the mobile biological labs. And uh, CIA clung to it, too, in in its organizational uh, picture because it kept up uh, pictures on its website of what turned out to be probably uh, helium-producing mechanisms for filling uh, artillery barrage balloons. And only very late in the day, that end of that year, beginning of the next year, did Tenet finally admit that even that was a farce. But I want to come back to one thing uh, with regard to Powell and his departure. Um, I saw the people over in Vice President Cheney's office, and I saw personally the grip they had on the President of the United States, one of the most inexperienced men in that office since World War II, maybe since ever. Um, And they had a grip on him, and the evangelical Christians had a grip on him, and he even called some of them in to talk to them about uh, the war and so forth. This was a very naive president, not unsmart, not dumb, but a naive president, an inexperienced president. And Cheney was the Machiavelli who pumped him full of everything that Cheney wanted. And I don't think Powell's resignation would have done anything. Um, And we forget, too, that the October 2002 National Intelligence Testament, as flawed a document as the presentation I learned later, was what we based it on. And every single member of the United States Congress who counted, and that was the majority of them, agreed with that assessment. And uh, if they didn't agree, they still voted for the war with that assessment in mind, the only intelligence assessment they had. Colonel Lawrence Wilkinson, I just want to stay with you on one more issue. Australia's Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, took our country to war. Of course, we're strong allies. Was this speech intended to convince allies like Australia? 
I don't think so. I, I think Powell knew as a military man, although Cheney kept criticizing him for making military comments, telling him he was secretary of state, not chairman of the Joint Chiefs anymore, which was very disparaging and a personal attack on Powell. Um, Powell kept making the point that it didn't matter how many troops we sent as long as we sent enough to handle the aftermath. And Rumsfeld started out with 55,000. General Franks managed to talk him up to 164,000. So only at that point did Allied participation become critical. And by that point, Secretary Rumsfeld had pretty much alienated all the traditional allies from the first Gulf War, for example, uh, where we had 600,000 men and women. Uh, We had the Saudis, the French, the Syrians, and a whole panoply of others. Um, We couldn't get that, and he knew it. So once we got to the 164,000, he kind of crossed his fingers as a military professional and said, okay, that'll be enough to to overthrow Hussein, but the aftermath is what I'm worried about. And that's what other military professionals were worried about, too. We didn't have enough people, even with the Aussies, with the Brits. We didn't have enough people to handle the post-hostility period, as it were, because it was hostilities for years after that. Greg Tillman, Colin Powell's speech followed escalating rhetoric from the White House and the Vice President Dick Cheney's office, which had been beating the drums of war for months. Was war inevitable regardless of the facts? Well, I think I would answer yes. Uh, the, The main point that I would make, though, that hasn't been mentioned is the role of the U.S. Congress. The, the vote that uh, Larry referred to was in October of 2002, which was the only thing we have uh, resembling a declaration of war resolution. But what it was really saying was that the Iraqis had to uh, let back in the UN inspectors that had been kicked out. And that happened in November. So the congressional vote was successful to that degree. But, but the interesting thing that happened once the inspectors uh, came back in was we started getting more and critically uh, divergent information on what our assumptions had been in that uh, October national intelligence estimate. So my, my uh, deep regret is that in, in, in Powell not resigning or doing something dramatic, that the U.S. Congress was never forced to again uh, confront the, the issues here in light of all of the incoming information. And it's my belief that between uh, February 5th, when Powell spoke, and the actual invasion six weeks later, every single piece of the administration case fell apart. And had that been publicized, had that been recognized by the Congress, I believe that would have made a difference. And that that, uh, that there would have been no congressional authorization to, uh, to actually invade uh, Iraq when, when it was given, because Saddam had already conceded a lot of the issues uh, and UN, inspect, UN and U.S. inspectors were back in the country gathering very important information on some of the critical elements that uh, the administration built its case for the invasion with. Mm. Lawrence, you've said in recent years that America exists to make war. Explain that to us. Well, it's a... It's a point of view that I think comes from our failure to conserve our enemies. There's a principle of international relations called conservation of enemies, and it means a prudent state never has any more than it can manage at one time. We have so many today, it's hard to count them all. 
um, better than 3 billion people in the world because of our sanctions indirectly or directly actually vote in polls that they think the number one threat to their future, and these are young people in particular, is the United States, the empires that were. That's what they often call it. But if you look at our history since 9-11, but even take a longer back look than that, since the Cold War ended, and even during the Cold War, we seem to like to make war, to make money for what is commonly called a military-industrial complex. And let me say one thing about what Greg just said. I don't disagree with what he said, but I will point out this. Ever since Bill Clinton's second term, the official policy of the Congress of the United States and the president, and thus the country, was regime change in Iraq. Clinton got that through the Congress. They passed it, the Iraq Liberation Act, and that was the official policy of the United States. Everybody forgets that, but it was. Now, it didn't specify the particular method, but there were lots of people in Congress who knew that that was going to be, I talked with many of them, military action to unseat Saddam Hussein. And they were just waiting and biding their time for when it was going to happen. Might not have been a majority, but it was a powerful group. So that group is part of what I'm talking about. And that group now is working on China, working on Russia, working on Iran. It's building a set of enemies out there in the world that defies the principle of conservation of enemies. And the empire is going to get really in trouble here if we don't do something about that. But I don't see us doing anything because empires at the end in particular tend to do these sorts of things. That's such an interesting um, point. Greg, can can we finish by talking about the uh, alleged spy balloon shot down by the U.S. military? Do you believe it was a Chinese spy device? Well, I'm still agnostic on that. Uh, I, I do think that it's more than a weather balloon. I have that impression. But uh, in general, I, I think the, the, the coverage, coverage is very uh, dramatic and alarmist. And uh, I, I think it's really beneath us to, uh, to cover it in the way we have. That is, from everything I've heard, the uh, Chinese, through their reconnaissance satellites, can uh, get the information that allegedly they may be obtaining in, uh, in this weather balloon. And if indeed uh, this is the best technology they've got to spy on the United States, then uh, they're in more trouble than we, we should have expected. So I thought there was really too much hype for this uh, incident. But having said that, I'm very glad that uh, we seem likely to fish, fish the, uh, the remains of the balloon out of the water and take a very close look at exactly what it is. Lawrence, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are just exactly what Greg said, plus I would add that I thought it was a ridiculous thing that they shot it down with a million-dollar missile instead of some rounds from a 20-millimeter. What a waste of money. But there again, that shows you what the empire does these days with its military munitions and with its equipment in general, an overreaction. And I go back to the U-2 incident when Gary Powers was shot down over the Soviet Union and ruined Dwight Eisenhower's trip to a summit that might have done something to end the Cold War a little bit earlier. Um, I'm wondering who set this up, in other words, who in the empire saw this as, as a political act that would sort of solidify the new Cold War with China, or a political act that would keep Blinken, Secretary Blinken from, Blinken from having to keep his engagement in Beijing, or a political act that was designed to create the, the kind of momentum that's necessary now to 
put us into a real Cold War that makes a lot of money, uh, and it will, for the complex. We're already making billions off Ukraine, for example. So there are all kinds of things that could be behind this besides just an innocent weather balloon or even a reconnaissance balloon. It was in the jet stream. And the jet stream is very, very precarious. You never know where it's going to go. And balloons don't get controlled. They aren't controlled. They move with the winds. So as Greg said, and I'll emphasize, it's really strange that the Chinese would be trying to collect intelligence from such an instrument. Thank you, Greg. And thank you, Lawrence. I've appreciated your time this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. In 2003, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson helped write that speech as the Chief of Staff in Colin Powell's office. He's since renounced it and America's war in Iraq. And at that same year, Greg Thielman was a State Department weapons expert who publicly accused Colin Powell of misleading America with that speech. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.